Uh, oh, oh, uh, please edit those noises out. <laughs> Start the episode with those noises. Hello and welcome to the latest, greatest episode of Movies Last Night. It's movie trivia time. You're going to jump right into it. All right. We haven't got time. We haven't got time to mess around with introductions. This is serious. <laughs> this is movie trivia. If you're listening, you'll just have to figure out who it is that's on the podcast. Part of the trivia. It could be, It's a free-for-all. It's all free-for-all. I will need you to raise your hands. And I'm going to call out your name. Answer the question. If you don't get it right, somebody else gets one other shot. If the next person doesn't get it right, we're done with the question and we're moving on. Okay? Sounds good. Scott, you're not participating, right? No, because I have the answers. I mean, right, right. technically, well, yeah, I wish. I wish. <laughs> I'm going to start with an easy one. What year was the movie Gone with the Wind released? You've already asked this. Ooh. Have I? Well, you should know the answer. <laughs> David? 1932? Close. That's really good guess. I'm going to throw it back to the room. Chris? 1935. No. Two people have tried it. Nobody's got it. I'm going to tell you the answer. 1939. Dang. Mm. Okay. Not bad. Not bad. You guys were in the, I mean, that was pretty good. It was a pretty good guess. Uh, this one's for the millennials out there. What kind of breakfast does Donkey want to make with Shrek in Shrek? David? Waffles. Correct. <laughs> oh, I am the best at what? At just being the best uh, reoccurring guest on this podcast. Okay. And David for the ones You're already who crowning are- yourself reoccurring guest on your first episode. <laughs> <laughs> I mean- <laughs> Audience already has felt my presence before, so <laughs> okay. now they just know it has a name and its name's David. <laughs> Next question. Where do Kat and Patrick first kiss in 10 Things I Hate About You? Chris? I know, I know. I just watched this first time a couple weeks ago. It's uh, during paintball at the end of it. It is. Holy shit. Oh. <laughs> I didn't think anybody was going to get that. Only now. because of recency <laughs> bias. I have not seen that one. I don't know. You give me like 10 <laughs> Things I Hate About You vibes. <laughs> no was that heath ledger yeah it is heath ledger yep mm-hmm. yep okay i remember that heath ledger and julia styles what film was kate winslet's first movie role in what was the first movie she was in kate winslet great movie do you guys want a clue yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah yes it was directed by the director of lord of the rings peter jackson do you want another clue yeah not his first movie not his first movie correct her first movie and co-starring Naomi Watts. Heavenly Creatures, it's a great movie. Oh, great movie, never. Heavenly Creatures. Huge recommend okay. for you guys out there. What film was Keanu Reeves' movie debut? Chris? No, I, it's wrong. Seth, over to you, because you had your hand up next. I just, I was maybe my own private Idaho, maybe. Nope. David? This is a weird one. Is it like Speed 3? In speed one, maybe. <laughs> it, can't, it, it can't make a debut in a movie that doesn't exist. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the movie Young Blood, which I've not seen. Oh, this is a weird one. This is perfect for us. This lineup of like dudes. Here's a question. <laughs> God, this is terrible. Where does Sex in the City 2 take place? <laughs> Miami. We've got to put your hand up first because you're disqualified from this round. <laughs> David. <laughs> Ardabi? Uh, Abu, Abu Dhabi. I'm going to give you it. Yes. That's similar to Miami. Yeah. Similar climate, perhaps. 
It's in Abu Dhabi. Yeah, it's bad. Where's the first movie? Uh, and probably in New York yeah. because that's where the that's where the show was based, wasn't it? New York. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what it is? So I've got a feeling it might be like Las Vegas or something totally random. So they probably want to go outside of the the parameters of the show. Now that they're making a movie, does that make sense? Yeah. Rest in peace, Matthew Perry. Tragic. Just talking about TV shows made me think about Friends. Made me think about his passing. That's terrible. What was the first James Bond movie ever made? The very first. Um, are there clues for this one? I'll give you a clue. Yes. <laughs> Part of the title of the movie, it's named after a man who has a, a specific profession. Uh, <laughs> he works in the medical field, presumably. Dr. No? Yes, I'm going to give you it now. Okay. okay. You didn't put your hand up, so technically I'm not really allowed <laughs> to give you the point. But because that was so yeah. painful all around, I'm going to give you the point. So that's one point for Seth. Dr. No. Did that kill you a little bit on the inside that we we didn't know that at all? It was a little torturous watching <laughs> watching you guys stare back at me with blank faces. I was like, what am I doing? I don't think Eric would have got that. Well, Eric might have got that. He might have got it. Oh, this is a fun one. The matrix code in the matrix. So you know all the green lines that run down the screen, like the code. It came from recipes from which kind of food? Got to put your hands up. Which kind of food did they use? So it was it, it, the lines of code is actually like recipes in whatever language it is. But what was the recipe for? Seth, no, you got your hand up. Was it brownies? <laughs> Chocolate brownies? <laughs> <laughs> it was weed brownies. Yeah, correct. Oh. No, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a clue. Seth will disqualify because you had one one go. I'll give you a clue. It's food that's traditionally served raw. Daniel had his hand up first. Sushi. Yes, correct. Okay. Sushi. That's what I was going to say. Wait, what kind of sushi? When did Four Weddings and a Funeral premiere? What year did Four Weddings and a Funeral come out? Come on. David. 94? Damn, on the money. Oh. oh. Hell yeah. <laughs> nice. Woo. Is that a total wild guess? Yes. Or, okay. I mean, I would have been a five-year-old watching that movie, so I don't, <laughs> I don't think it's from memory. <laughs> what was the movie Scream originally called? The movie Scream, the Wes Craven movie, what was original? David, hands up. Scary movie. Yep, correct. Yeah. I think that was kind of easy, probably. Which holiday do Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal celebrate at the end of When Harry Met Sally? Daniel, you had your hand up first. Uh, New Year's Eve. Correct, yep, correct. Correct. Where does Hugh Grant's character work in the movie Notting Hill? I love this movie. Where does he work? What's his profession? David. Does he... Work in a bookstore? He does. I'm going to give you that. It's actually a travel bookstore specifically for travel books, which is kind of very much of its time because that shit wouldn't <laughs> yeah, exist, yeah, wouldn't exist but, anymore. Um, <laughs> Not at all. What a weird niche bookstore you needed. Who is the youngest Oscar winner of all time? David. Anne Paquin. You know what it is? That's a really good guess for the piano. Yeah. It's, it's not right, ah. but it's really close. Daniel. I don't know how to like say her name, but it's it's the lead actress from um, Beast of the Southern Wild, right? No. Damn. I'm going to see if I can get you a clue. I don't know who it is, so I'm going to look it up and I'm going to see if I can get you a clue. It has to be someone from like the 50s or 60s. Well, it's a she. She. She won when she was 10 years old. Chris. Shirley Temple. Oh. <laughs> no. I swear I was going to guess that too. I'll admit I was going to guess that. You were going to guess. I'm glad I'm not alone in that. What year did she win? 1973. Okay. Oh. I think it was. No, hold on. It's it's she won it in the yeah, yeah, 1973 for a ma- a movie called Paper Moon. 
None of us have seen Paper Moon, have we? None of us. Okay, it's Tatum O'Neill. Tatum O'Neill. Uh, yeah. Okay, mm. I've heard that name. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard the name. Nobody had a clue. <laughs> How many animated Pixar movies have been released thus far? Daniel. Uh, uh, 15. Nope. Chris. 20. No, it's 26. Close, though. 26 off. seems a lot. Yeah. 26 seems a lot. What was the last one they did? Um, that was it Elemental this Elemental, year? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was that this Elemental, year? Elemental, yeah, mm-hmm. probably. It yeah. was the last one that came out in the theater. It's been a long year. Elemental. I kind of like that movie. I know a lot of people don't, but I do. It looks, I was really glad I saw it in a theater because it looks incredible. Oh yeah, it looks beautiful. Uh, the story's kind of like whatever, but, but but the animation is really beautiful at times. Which actor or actress in one of their first roles played a young Wendy Darling in Hook? Steven Spielberg's Hook. She played a young Wendy Darling. See her face. Daniel, got your hand up there? Is it Jennifer Garner? Nope. Similar age, though. Um, I'll give you a clue. If I tell you a clue, it's gonna, I mean, you're going to get it immediately. <laughs> immediately. Maybe. She ended up with a head in the box. Mm. What's in the box? What's in the box? Chris. Gwyneth Paltrow. Correct. Amanda. That's her? Yep. Wow. Thank wow. you. What's in the box? <laughs> What's in the box? <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is a fun one. It's a little past Halloween, but this is a Halloween-esque one. Uh, which celebrity's face is the Michael Myers mask in Halloween a replica of? Chris. Come on, it's William Shatner. Yeah, you got it first. Seth, you were almost got it there. That could just be yeah, a time yeah. delay between, between states. But oh, good. It was close. I'll give you a chance to redeem yourself here. Which actor was originally cast as Juliet opposite Leonardo DiCaprio in Romeo and Juliet? Was it either Kate Winslet, Liv Tyler, or Natalie Portman? David, you went up there first. Liv Tyler. Incorrect. Daniel, I think it was you next. Was it? I don't know. Portman? Ah, yes, it was Portman. Oh, wow. That would have been weird. Okay, I'm going to do two more, then we're going to call us today because it's painful. (laughs) (laughs) We should do an entire episode of just trivia. What's painful is your your overhead lighting. Yeah. My lighting? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't do anything about it. I no, don't I'm have just, a lamp in here. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just giving you shit. I feel really judged right now. There's something kind of regal about it, though. Like, like holy, almost. Mm-hmm. Scott, you're glowing. Yeah. In Ferris Bueller's Day Off, who does Ferris claim to be at the door of the restaurant? It's kind of vague. <laughs> Seth, go for it. What's well, like the Chica- the sausage king of Chicago? Something like that. Correct, correct. Abe Froman, Sausage King of Chicago. Yeah, Abe Froman. Okay. <laughs> Damn, that was good. Damn, that was really good. I didn't think anyone was going to get job. that. Oh, that's a great film. I've seen that like so many times. Yeah. In Coming to America, what does Semi get installed in the cheap apartment that he and Prince Akeem rent? <laughs> Seth, go for it. Oh, a hot tub? Yes. Big correct. old hot tub? Yeah. A jacuzzi, nice. yeah, correct. <laughs> Nice, nice. All right, we're in a, we got one more, this last one. Yep, okay. In Clueless, how does Cher, that's Alicia Silverstone's character, how does she choose her outfits? It's actually pretty cool. I'm just going to tell you, so I'm not even going to give you a clue. <laughs> she has this computer program and it's like you can line up like a dress and then a pair of pants and then some socks and you line it up and it's like picture her head and you can try out different outfits. It's actually kind of cool. It's like an app that I think should exist now where you upload all the pictures of your clothes that you own into the app and then... You assign the app to like dress you. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. Why does that not exist? I need that. 
I'm telling you, I'm going to make money off that. <laughs> yeah, right now it's uh, David for everyone else tied at three. So. Okay. Holy sh- Oh, in that case, this is going to make it all interesting. Okay, what was Brad Pitt's first feature film? Seth? All right, I think it's, um, what the hell? It's the Ridley Scott movie. Oh my God, I'm blanking. It's uh, Susan, Susan Sarandon and... Oh uh, no, it's not Thelma and Louise. It's not that one? No, no. Fuck, okay. David? Oh, is it like three brothers? Nope. Daniel? It's not 12 Monkeys, is it? No, no, that's later. Nobody's going to get it. It's a movie called Dark Side of the Sun. Oh, yeah. Dark, yeah, Dark Side of the Sun. <laughs> it's the it's the sequel to uh, Dark Side of the Moon. It's, uh, <laughs> it's Scott, have you seen uh, Moneyball? Great movie. Because I know you hate Brad Pitt. You liked him in that, right? Chris and Daniel might know this but on the podcast. I used to fucking hate Brad Pitt, but all of a sudden he just clicked with me and I'm like, I just started to like him and everything now. <laughs> and I don't know what it is. Apart from Bullet Train. Okay, I didn't see that. Which he should have known better than to do. He should mm-hmm. never have done Bullet Train. Mm-hmm. I thought he was really bad in Babylon. What? Yeah, I he's thought he really was really good in Babylon. No, he's awful in Babylon. <laughs> he carries. He has the best performance in Babylon. Yeah, he carries that, I think, I feel like. No way. No, he's terrible in that movie. He's awful. He was one of the worst parts of it for me, along with everything else, but... <laughs> some of the shit that comes out of your mouth on this podcast that's wild i hate that movie dude he's really good in it that's the movie that made me start to love him i knew it i knew it <laughs> babylon and ad astra those are the two movies that turned me on him ad astra is a wonderful movie i just don't need to see that i was recommended really highly legend of the fall and so I, I watched it. I mean, this was like it's terrible. Two years ago. Oh, it was <laughs> yeah, so terrible. bad. It's like Brad Pitt. He's just oh, he's so good. He's so good in this role. And it's like oh no, it's just Brad Pitt. He does this in every movie. Like you know who is really good in that movie though? Anthony Hopkins eats that movie alive. He's so good as the domineering. Yeah, he's good. I mean, is there a movie he's not good in? No, there isn't a movie he's not good yeah. in. Hopkins is pretty much brilliant in everything. Have you seen Fracture with Ryan Gosling? Yeah, great movie. That movie fucking rocks. Okay, I need to see that. Yeah, that movie slaps hard. Yeah, it's awesome. And he has that machine. It's like a contraption with all those balls that roll down, like that metal machine yeah. that spins around. Oh, God. Like, you know, like five minutes or like, you know, like 10, 20 minutes in that he's the one who did it. And like Ryan Gosling knows. And he's just fucking with him the entire time. Yeah, and it's how he gets him. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. Oh, man, that movie such a good rules. Movie. What was Chadwick Boseman's first movie? Nobody's going to get this. I'm telling you right now. Yeah, what decade? I have no idea. I was going to say look it up, but then don't because then you'll know what it was. <laughs> it's a movie called The Express. No, no. Never. No. I know The Polar Express. Now we're talking. Now we are talking. Okay, which actor played adult Simba in the 2019 version of The Lion King? You got it, Daniel. Was it Donald Glover? It was. It was. Awful movie. Last question. I think you guys should get this one. It's easy for me to say because I can see all the answers. <laughs> <laughs> in rear window from 1954 what is jeff jeffries recovering from when he thinks he witnesses a murder across the courtyard daniel okay it's a it's a broken leg right yeah it is a great movie great movie you know what else is a good movie on the on the subject of uh rear window have you seen the movie with shia labeouf where he is a young teen and he gets put under house arrest disturbia, disturbia and it's a take on Rear Window, great movie. Great movie. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, it's fun. I I, I like LaBeouf a lot. Okay, so I'm going to introduce to the in, to the listener now that we've got through trivia who's on the show. So we have myself, Scott, the host of Movies Last Night. We have Chris and Daniel, the other two hosts of Movies Last Night. And then we have two new first-timers popping both of your cherries at once. We have David <laughs> and we have Seth. Say hi, David and Seth. Hello. What's up? Hello. That's efficiency. That's efficiency. <laughs> wow. Okay, so much energy. Yeah. Let's do this. <laughs> That's the type of show this is. So buckle in. High energy. (laughs) Dear listener, on today's episode, we're going to be talking about Killers of the Flower Moon, the brand new movie by the great Martin Scorsese. I guess the best way to start this off is I was going to start this off reading a little bit of history out about the uh, Osage tribe and a little bit of stuff. But honestly, all I know about what happened is what I've learned from the movie, admittedly. My history when it comes to the events around that period of time. And I'm guessing most people's knowledge of the history around that period of time in America is not the best, unless you've read the book or you have a specific interest in that area of history. So I don't want to get too much into it because I'm going to end up putting something out of context or saying something that's, you know what I mean? I don't want to really like get too in the nitty gritty because really the job of any great movie is to tell you what you need to, to to teach you what you need to learn. If the movie's doing its job, it should be teaching me enough to keep up with it and to explain what's happening. And it should also be doing it in a fair and historically accurate way in order for it for its view, because not everybody's going to know the entire subject matter of, of, of something. So with that being said, let's talk a little bit about Martin Scorsese. Martin Charles Scorsese. <laughs> was born November 17th, 1942. He's an American filmmaker and an actor. And interestingly enough, he holds both an American and Italian citizenship. What difference that makes, I have no idea. None. I wonder if he got a honorary citizenship in Italy or if it must be like through his family. Because I'm pretty sure he's like, with his age, his, his family's probably like all Italian, I'm guessing. His parents are like very Italian, right? Yeah, like they probably just were Italian. They have citizen. You didn't know all his movies were based on his own experiences, like The Irishman and all that? Yes. Yes, I did. I did. Cape Fear. Okay. (laughs) Before we start, I don't need to go in the weeds about Martin Scorsese. He's a legend. He's a fucking legend. If you listen to this podcast and you have an interest in movies, you should at least be familiar with some of his work. I'm going to go and bring up his filmography, but I'm going to go around the room and I'm going to ask you one by one, and I want you to tell me your favorite Martin Scorsese movie. Straight off the top of your head. Don't have to think about it. Just give me a favorite movie by him. So I'm going to start with you, Daniel. Oh, God. Uh, I think I'm going to go with Silence just because I rewatched it recently. And uh, it's just, it's incredible. Uh, I really like a lot of his his late period stuff too. Good answer. Good answer. David. It's been a while since I've seen one of his movies. Probably Wolf of Wall Street. Good answer. Good answer. Comedy, which he isn't really known for, but it's a really, really good movie. Great. Uh, Chris? The Departed. Wow, interesting. Always That's a bit of a controversial down. pick. Damn. Okay, I need to see that one. Oh, you haven't seen it? No, watch it after this. Okay. <laughs> okay, Seth. I want to say like Kundun, but I definitely don't like that. That's not my favorite one. That is not uh, Goodfellas. Very obvious, but Goodfellas. Okay, going with a classic, tried and true. If I was going to go off the top of my head, it's Cape Fear is my favorite. Damn, Scorsese movie. Only because I think that's my favorite De Niro performance too. I think that movie is amazing. I think it's like, and it's a remake, obviously, but I think it's the Scorsese movie that's the most like a De Palma movie. And I think that's why I like it the most because I could totally see De Palma making that movie Um, because it has that kind of trashy pulpiness that De Palma has. And I I just think it's a really good movie. And Andy's super hot in that movie too. He's like white hot. 
Like if you, if anybody's out there listening, want to check out a bit of hot Robert De Niro, he looks so good in that movie. He's in such good shape. He does, yeah. <laughs> Can I add an honorable men, uh, honorable mention pick? Yeah. I also just rewatched this for the first time recently, um, but I really liked Age of Innocence with Daniel Day Lewis. Yes, and uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah, the movie's great. Yeah, it's a, it like it takes a minute to like pick up, but when when like the the main like romance between the like should or should they or shouldn't they kind of thing between um between him and who's the what is her name? Is it Winona Ryder? No, um, Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah, is is Winona Ryder in that? Yeah, movie she too? is. She's yeah, like she's, yeah. she's like she's the in. woman he's he's married to. But he's like, oh, right, he's okay. like drawn to her cousin or whatever. Um, and it's set in like the like nineteen like what twenties New York, I think, or something like that, or like early like New York City. Um, yeah, uh, like the costumes are great, the sets are great. Um, really good performances. Yeah, I just I really loved it. I'm gonna read through uh, Scorsese's uh, twenty six full length film filmography. Here we go. So I'm gonna skip the first two. In 1967, he has. Uh, something called Who's Knocking at My Door, which none of us have seen, I'm guessing. 1972, something called Boxcar Bertha. We're going to skip those. We're going to go right in in 1973, which what I think most people assume is his first full feature length, is Mean Streets, which is also our introduction to Robert De Niro. And I'm guessing also, I think Harvey Keitel's in that movie is his brother, isn't he? Yeah. So you're getting a lot of heavy hitters coming in right off the gate with that movie. Excellent movie. So here's his run. Check out this run. It's fucking wild. 73 Mean Streets. 74 Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. 76 Taxi Driver. 77 New York, New York. uh, 1980 Raging Bull. 82 King of Comedy. 85 After Hours with Griffin Dunn. Has anybody seen that movie? Yeah. It's a really good movie. Then 86 Color of Money. Excellent movie with uh, Paul Newman and Tom Cruise. Cruise working with Scorsese back then. Then we go 88, temp, uh, Last Temptation of Christ, 90, Goodfellas, 91, Cape Fear, 93, Age of Innocence, 95, Casino, 97, Kundun, 99, Bringing Out the Dead, 2002, Gangs of New York, 2004, The Aviator, 2006, The Departed, 2010, Shutter Island, 2011, Hugo, 2013, The Wolf of Wall Street, 2016, Silence, 2019, The Irishman, and 2023, Killers of the Flower Moon. So I just <laughs> read that out. What kind of, I mean, come on. It's, that's a hell of a filmography. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Honestly. Is Scorsese the goat? I think so. One of them. I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. He's definitely the greatest living American filmmaker. I mean, come on. You heard what you just read out loud. <laughs> <laughs> Who else can like, has anything that stacks up to that? He's got, he's got all of his bases covered there. It's like his versatility is unmatched. And then he did a kid for a movie for his like grandkids with Hugo. Hugo, yeah, which is a great movie. Um, all about the love of cinema. To say he's the 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 greatest American director, I think is he's definitely a good safe bet, at least from his body of work. Definitely. I think uh I mean, I think we'll get into it, but I think this movie definitely adds to that legacy. I mean, that's all you need to know. Do you need to know anything else about Scorsese <laughs> other than that? No. You don't need to know anything else. Could anybody give me what they think are trademarks of Scorsese's films? Like he has recurring motifs and trademarks in, in most of his movies. When you think of Scorsese and you think about Scorsese movies, what 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 do you think of? One thing I always expect is like kind of like pulling from like the same kind of roster of actors that have shown up in all his movies here and there. And as well as like really strong supporting cast that aren't necessarily even integral to the plot, but just part of like building a bigger world. Like he's really good at world building. You know what I think too? I think he is one of the the masters of soundtrack usage. And 
not so much soundtrack like orchestral like uh score but definitely he's the master of like needle drops or like the like the, the tracks that he uses uh, i think he uses music very very effectively and i mean just to just to think of like one or two is like um sympathy for the devil uh the start of the departed when we're introduced to jack nicholson there's so many great ones specifically the end of goodfellas where everything starts to ramp and then the music starts kicking in and they have that it's the rolling stone song and it's the can you hear me knocking and it goes to the extended bit where it's like the jam and everything's getting more so he's he's always been very interested in music and i mean he made the the last waltz the the last uh concert of the band if anybody's seen that it's phenomenal um he's also made a rolling stones tour documentary i think or tour concert video so he's always been like interested in like classic rock always think of music when i think of scorsese movies and i think he's, he's really really good at like his use of music directors who have kind of aped that is if you were to watch boogie nights like you can't watch boogie nights without thinking of goodfellas because that movie's just like it's it moves with the same kind of pace and he, you know and, he, and paul thomas anderson is very good at using music too but i think that he's getting that from scorsese um, but yes, a good point too, Chris, about his use of recurring uh, cast. Like we know that he did a bunch of movies with De Niro. Then he went on a run with um, DiCaprio, and it's so it's kind of nice to see him bringing DiCaprio and De Niro in, and like having those two team up together. I think that's a kind of a nice touch. That's good to see. Okay, because we've got a packed house and we don't have forever to do this episode, we'll not get too far into the weeds with things. But let's kind of go around, and I think we should make this our spoiler-free. A spoiler three th- thoughts and opinions after watching the movie. I want to see, I want to know how many times you've seen it, if you've seen it in any special formats. And I want to know uh, what your expectation was going in and what your initial impression was from the movie. Actually, did we have the scores? Yeah, who Trivia? won? Actually, we didn't even. <laughs> You're so excited. Oh, right. We didn't uh, even announce the winner. <laughs> I think I did. Oh. Yeah, I, I wound up winning five. Okay. Uh, five. David had four. Chris and Seth were tied with three. Okay. Usually I have zero, so that's not bad. That's a win to me. Everybody got on the board there. That's pretty good. Okay, can you read us a plot synopsis, Chris, before we go into Yeah, it's, our... it's really short. Is that all right? Yeah, that's good. It's just for the listener. Yeah, so it's set in 1920s Oklahoma. Focuses on a series of murders of Osage members and re- relations to the Osage Nation after oil was being produced on tribal land. Tribal members had retained mineral rights on their reservation and white people sought to gain their wealth. I mean, if you've seen the trailer, the trailer pretty much gives yeah. you the yeah. everything you need to know yeah. for the setup for what's going on. Daniel. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> um, I've seen it 17 times. <laughs> uh, I know. I've seen it three times, twice in IMAX and once in Dolby down in uh, Franklin. And then, uh, sorry, what all am I required to say? <laughs> <laughs> You're contractually obliged to tell me um, what what your hype was. What, what How excited on the hype train? Where were you on the hype train? Oh, I was like 100 or like, you know, as hyped as you could possibly be. Um, I, the, I really loved the first trailer that came out for this uh, with the kind of like that recurring, like, uh, can you find the wolves in this picture sort of like line that they, I think they played it twice in the trailer. It only appears once in the movie. But yeah, the trailer like sold me. And then um, I, I don't know. I really love the Irishman. Uh, I love Scorsese. So I was obviously like... I'll, I'll go see anything he puts out at this point. And then, um, yeah, I think I was just happy that this got a, like a wide kind of theatrical release because it is produced by like Apple um, and, they, and they, they like funded it entirely and it will be streaming there at some point, which that'll be nice, but I'm glad like that people had a chance to go see it because uh, it, I don't know, I, I think it exceeded my expectations. It's, it's not at all the movie I expected to get, but it is a great movie nonetheless. And I think it, for me personally, adds to like, I think since like Wolf of Wall Street, 
I, I think we're in the best run of movies that he's ever had, which is, I think, saying a lot based on his career, obviously. But like Wolf of Wall Street, Silence, Irishman, and now this. Like that, that's to me, that's an incredible run for some, for, especially for uh, being at like what we, I guess we have to assume is the tail end of his career. So but I think that's all I have to say about it. That's spoiler free, at least. Between Dolby and IMAX, what'd you prefer? Uh, the Dolby presentation only because like there's none, like none of the production elements of this movie, like we're concerned with shooting it like for making it for IMAX. So it's great to see it on a big screen and IMAX sounds great, but the, the presentation in Dolby I think was better. And that was also my first time ever seeing something in Dolby in that theater. That theater is nuts. The best theater. It's right. crazy. That theater is the best movie theater I've ever been in. Unless something like with Oppenheimer where it's like 70 millimeter and I can see, I like, I have to go see it at like the, at the Regal Opry. Like I'm going to try and see more stuff at that one. I think oh. like, um, so, so you're, conver- you're converting. <laughs> yeah. I no, I'm not converting. I'm just, it's a great theater. I'm not going to miss out on it just cause I have to pay like full price. Oh, that sucks. You have to pay full price, but yeah, it's worth it. Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna, I'm probably gonna go see the new uh, Godzilla there. Yeah, definitely. There's a new Godzilla movie. <laughs> Is there a new Godzilla movie, Scott. <laughs> next month. Yes, next month. This oh, is from uh, yeah. from Japan. Wow. Uh, Martin Scott says he's eighty. He's oh, eighty yeah. years old. He's getting up there, or he's already up there. I mean, yeah, yeah, he's up there. He's not getting up there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it sucks to say, but he probably won't be with us that much longer. So like it's crazy that we're we're getting this level of output at the end of his like career and life more than likely. He could make it to a hundred. Oh yeah, and I, and I have no doubt like that he will like keep making movies until like he does die. But it's still insane to be getting a movie like this from from someone at this stage in their career. I think. Okay, uh, David, moving on to you. Uh, I've seen it once in IMAX hype level. You know, the trailer was good. It looked intriguing like the good actors you know the leo and robert de niro yeah i thought it was a really good movie um when you did the whole filmography of martin scorsese i realized i've only seen three movies of his and it's only been the recent ones <laughs> uh so i don't have any like evidence of what he used to make but i really like this one and it's crazy to think that the timeline of this movie when he started making films was 50 years out from when this happened in real life that he couldn't make it then and it had to be like a hundred years out for this story to actually be a thing available to him. That's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good take. I thought it was a good story to be told. And it's like probably a movie that every, Hey, you need a, you're a high school history teacher. You need a day off. You're watching killers of the flower moon because I don't think there's, it's, there's nothing like inappropriate. I think in an all like non-spoiler ways, but like there's nothing too violent in it but it's all educational that's a good point yeah you could totally show this to a high school kid and be like hey they you know like we're gonna do a field trip or whatever are we gonna watch this movie as part of you and like yeah you're right i don't think there's anything content wise that would be there isn't really no you're totally right i mean it's violent but it's not like it's not there's nothing it's not uh, like gangs of new york violent <laughs> i'm sure you could get like a censored version for school just to kind of cut out some of those violent scenes okay thanks david it's awesome chris uh yeah i saw it once uh, like three days ago in IMAX and I loved it. I mean, I'm a Scorsese fan. I didn't know what to expect going in except from the trailer. I had no idea that it was going to be, I didn't even know that it was set on a reservation to be honest. I just was like, oh, cool music, Scorsese. I'm in. I don't really care what it's about. I'm going in and loved it. Seth, over to you. Yeah, I loved it. Um, it's kind of the late stage Scorsese for me. Um, I It's like, I loved the Irishman a lot. So I was kind of expecting something in that kind of register 
I've seen it two times. The first experience, I had like a weird experience. The theater was really quiet, and just the viewing experience was bad. And then I saw it in IMAX, and I really loved it. I loved it with the sound and everything. I remember speaking to you after you uh, first saw it, and in, in your experience totally changed, didn't it, based around the viewing experience, really made a difference and how you felt about it. Yeah, like with the the first time I watched it, it was just like I was literally bored, and I was I was like I can't we can't do another hour, I just can't. And then the second time it just like flew by, I loved it. So it was all about the IMAX and the sound for sure. Nice, thanks, Seth. So my hype level going into the movie was pretty high. I mean, big fan of Scorsese. I was a little cold on the uh, Irishman, so I think my experience with that movie. I, that's definitely a movie I need to rewatch. So I think coming off the Irishman, I, I think I was a little cold on Scorsese, but the trailer that was cut for this was fantastic. Like a really, really good trailer, which immediately got me interested in DiCaprio being in it, got me interested in it too. So hype levels, yeah, about as high as you're going to get this year. And yeah, I think that was, I think one of the worst years I've personally had at the theater was is this year. So coming off a slow year, I was very, very excited for this movie. Um, my viewing experience, I've only seen it once. My viewing experience was very similar to Seth's because I think I saw it in the same theater Seth saw it in uh, on the first time around. Now, you know how much of a snob I am for uh, presentation and screens and sound and how much I think that can drastically change your perception of a movie. And I feel like the what must be frustrating if you're a creator and an artist is you spend all of this money and all of this time crafting something and making it sound and look optimal only for it to go out in its your basically it's like i don't know it's kind of like making a steak like a michelin star restaurant making a steak and then serving it to people like out of a garbage can you know what i mean wrapped in an old wrapper of like paper that they found on the street you're you're basically it must be very frustrating to know that you're all of these hundreds and thousands of people put their years of their life into making something and then the theater is too lazy and charges $17 to display a, mu- a movie in piss poor pro- quality projection, terrible sound, terribly calibrated. And I know I'm going off on a, on a rant here, but like, <laughs> I, well, you have a point. I could, I could, I could see past that. I could see past it. So I, I, as much as I knew my viewing experience was going to suck, I was like, okay, but the movie's still going to rock and the movie slapped <laughs> as the kids <laughs> say. It. And I thought it was fantastic. I didn't feel the length of the movie at all. It's a long movie, but the movie just swung by. From, I think um, it's very energetic. And I spoke to Daniel about this. And I think uh, I think I was speaking to you, Daniel, about this. But I, for me, I kind of, it, it feels like Mad Max Fury Road to me. Yeah, you said that. Like, obviously, yeah. it, not like in terms of uh, content or theme or anything like that, but in terms of it's an 80-year-old man making a movie with more energy than I've seen anybody making a movie on Netflix or any, any of this new shit. There's more, there's more swerve and there's more like swagger to this movie than pretty much anything I've seen recently. For an 80 year old man to make a movie that just moves like that, it's just, and I know he didn't make the movie himself. It's not like there's other people making the movie with him, but in terms of it just being like effortless and so energetic and so um, exciting and enthralling and the performances are great. I think um, I don't want to get too into it because I don't really... I think in terms of the representation too, I think it was very considered and uh, careful and and I think it's respectful of the people who it's talking about and people's histories that it's talking about. And I think all of it across the board is singing. Uh, so for me, it's like a solid nine out of 10. I think, I, I think it's superb. 
it's the best movie I've seen this year. It's not my favorite movie that I've seen this year, but it's definitely the best movie I've seen this year. I think it's a better movie than Oppenheimer. And I know not to put them in a race, but you kind of have to when I start getting towards the end of the year. But like, I think Oppenheimer is another example of a movie that's made incredibly. This movie is also made incredibly, but this movie is just more entertaining, I guess, than a movie like Oppenheimer. Uh, Craft-wise, they're both, I would say, on, on equal par. But I just think the movie's uh, great. I'm, I can't wait to watch it when it comes out on Apple TV. And I believe it's going to be the extended edition that comes out on Apple TV. So Ooh, I think it's going to be nice. longer. Oh, yeah. So we're going to get a bit what? more stuff. I think it's like four hours long, give or take, I think. I'm down for so, that. I would say, I would say, because we're talking about Apple TV, this movie really does benefit from the at home viewing so you can like take a break or you can watch it in portions. I, I really do think that the narrative will actually is strengthened by that. Cause you can just go away and you don't have to just endure it all at once. Oh yeah. Cause I think like for me, the last like hour was when my body was like, yep, I need to stand up <laughs> or do it. So again, but it, it did the pacing of the movie is like, you could pause it right then, get up, go yeah. get something and come back. And you're not like, miss or like skipping a beat you could just like say okay that was intermission now we're in this new phase yeah it's very much set up like in chapters there's been a lot of conversation about this movie i don't really want to get too in the weeds with that conversation but we can't touch on it if you guys want to and we'll talk everything else when we come back from the break thanks listeners we'll be right back And we're back. Thanks for sticking around, listeners. Uh, we're in our spoiler-free discussion for Killers of the Flower Moon. So if you've actually got to this point and you don't want anything spoiled for the movie, please uh, pause, watch the movie, then come back and resume the episode. You're not likely to do that. You're probably just going to pause it and never listen to this show ever again. <laughs> like, you're never going to listen to this episode again, really, are you? But anyway, if you do, thank you for sticking around. I'm just going to start this discussion because I don't know, I never know how to do these spoiled discussions eric has a good way of doing it where eric likes to go from the ending of the movie so go let's discuss the end of the movie and we work our way backwards which i kind of like there's a lot though with this movie to do that (laughs) exactly i just want the discussion to flow so um here's where i think we should start it do you think ernest was in love with molly Ooh, that's a good question yes yeah i think he was in love with molly but i think he was also in love with himself more and money like he always said. And I think maybe his idea of love is like individualized to him, but I don't think it really fits what actual love is. I don't know. I think he's like a misguided goof, but he actually like understands love. I mean, but, but like, how can you say you love your wife and then plot to get her sisters killed and put her through that much grief and sorrow in her life? I think that, I think that there is a case for he was being manipulated so in such a way that he could ha- he could both be in love with Molly and do things that would put her in detriment. I, I just think he was like he was just being mind fucked by by De Niro's character by Hale. And he was coming back from post war, so like he was so vulnerable. He's truly the definition of a complicated character, and that's what I really enjoyed about him. I also think he's he's like far and away the dumbest like <laughs> Scarsese protagonist, right? Like ever. Or, I mean, granted, there's movies I haven't seen, but like he. No, he is. He's dumber than he is in The Departed. Like, there's no way we can have a discussion to make him like a good guy. Yeah, like, no, no. He's a protagonist. <laughs> we could just be like, did he love her or not? Like, uh, maybe. I think at times, maybe he did. I mean, I guess if the heartbreak, like, 
big spoiler was when the big heartbreak for him, he turned. It's like, so there was a deep connection to his family that there was a point that would cross for him to be like, oh yeah, even with manipulation, my family does matter to me. But again, he's such a narcissist. It had to be his family. I think he does love her, but I think that's not really the point. I think that regardless of whether he loves her or not, it doesn't matter because of what ultimately of what he does to Molly and what he's not able to admit to her in that last scene. What do you think, Scott? I think that, yeah, I mean, I just think it's interesting. I think that if you notice that he doesn't give her the full, the full shot when he's given it and, and De Niro's like, make sure you give her the full shot, make sure you give her the full shot. The doctor's like, Hey, make sure you give her the full shot. And he never gives her the full shot when he's given it. So there's, I think there's an element to him where he's doing it, but he he doesn't want to, I think he's, I think he's, I think he's, he's, it's confusing. And I think you're right. I think if you were to probably look at him, I think he's probably low IQ, like functioning low IQ. So I'm guessing he would, if, if you were to like in today, in today's age, if they were to like psychoanalyze him or whatever they do, test him. He probably tests like really low IQ, which means he's susceptible and open to manipulation, which De Niro masterfully does on him, even though it's kind of painfully obvious at times where you're like, dude, can you not really see what he's doing? Like it's, you know, he's so oblivious to it. So I think there's a level of understanding that he has though. And I think, I do think it's a kind of, I do think it's important in a way because I think it's possible for him to love her and willingly hurt her. I think it's possible. I think because we can only really judge love through what it's subjective. So I think he is in love with her by his standards of being in love with her. Like you said, when his child dies, then he breaks down, then it's obvious that he's, he's capable of love and he's capable of hurt. But what's worrying about that though, is that he's so capable of hurt and sadness and grief for his child. Yet he's, he's watching her suffer and suffer and suffer. And he knows what he's doing because him not giving her the full shot, that means he knows what's in the shot. It's not that he's being tricked into giving her what he thinks is insulin. If he's not giving her the full insulin dose, he knows what's in the insulin. Therefore, there's a premeditated aspect of that way. Well, not premeditated, but he's aware of what he's doing. And that's why he's not doing the full amount. And that's, that makes him kind of fascinating. I think it's fascinating that he's like, he's like that. I'm not saying it doesn't make him a good person. It makes him a terrible person. but. I think it's an interesting element to yeah, the story. It's very layered. There's that brilliant scene where she asks him, like, well, what, what does she say? She says, uh, wait, uh, what, what part of it? She's asking him if she, if, if he knew what was in the shots. I can't remember oh, at the exact very wording. End, like at the very end of the movie. Yeah. Very yeah, end. She says, yeah. um, she says, have you told all your truths? And then, um, she asks him like, what were, what was in, like, what did you give me? And he acts like confused. Yeah, he holds that beat. He holds that beat, and he, he like his face scrunches up, and it's like, oh god, he does know. Like it, it's 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 DiCaprio, like really doing a killer job there. That seems all. Yeah, you can literally see like the guilt on his face, and like how it's like tearing him apart. And even with all that going on, he still can't like admit it to her. Still lies. Yeah. So I mean, he's lying. He's lying about the to himself. Yeah. Would you think he's lying to himself that he loves her? And if he admitted that he was poisoning her, then he's admitting that he actually wasn't in love with her. But he probably has told himself that he saved her by not giving her. He's like, he probably never thought, oh, I can go kill her sister. I can go kill whatever. I can go kill every family member. But uncle's not going to make me kill my wife. No. And then when it happened, he's like, he probably tells him, it's like, uncle made me do this and I saved your life because I didn't give you all of it. And that's how he justifies it in his head. That's a really good point. And I think... That's a lot about what 
um, that's kind of a lot of what scares me the most or like the, the scariest parts of this movie to me are like how easily or like nonchalantly like Ernest and, and not even just Ernest, like Ernest and like Hale can do these things to these people while still just like telling to them to their face that they like care about them and love them. It's like they, it's like they, they believe both things. But yeah. They, yeah. And they believe both things and it's terrifying. And they're doing both things at yeah. the exact same time. And they, yeah. And they're actually doing both yeah. things. Like he opens, like he opens at like ballet school in the movie at like after blowing up a house and killing two people. And that's one of the most chilling parts of the movie to me. And I think it's a big theme too in the movie is, is, is about how like people, people will make choices based on their identity based on when it like benefits them specifically an example of like whiteness and in this, in this setting, like that it's, it's always easier for Ernest to fall back on that, even though he like, he is embedded with like this, with, um, with the Osage, like he's still, he still always has the white, like Hale and his whiteness to like fall back to. Yeah. Because as much as Hale speaks a language is part of that community is revered in that community as being a, a strong contributor. You know, like you said, building the, the ballet school and then um, noticeably. He's at that like tribal meeting. Yes, exactly. And he has this really chilling thing. And I think it's the most chilling thing he does is um, how he's like, uh, you know, the uh, other native guy who he's hanging out with, who is the guy who is prone to melancholia. They say he's, uh, he's melancholic. Yeah. He's tried to kill himself before. And he's like, oh, but he's my best friend. Yeah. And, and then there's something really, there's something really chilling about the way he says that because he acts for all intents and purposes like his best friend to him. But all this time, he's really got that um, insurance policy out <laughs> on whatever he's doing. And um, but there's something really chilling about the way he says that because I think when he says that, I think he genuinely thinks that he is his best friend. But it's also it's his best friend. But he but also it's like that weird divine and dividing line where. Um, He'll be part of this community. He'll be he'll be in, integral into how it operates, but at the same time, he'll always be white, and there will always not be him. You know what I mean? He'll like it doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter like how invested they are in that. They will always be in their mind the separation of who they are and, and where they've what they're they're valued as. You know what I mean? And that's kind of fucking scary. But I think that. I mean, that's evident throughout history, like in so many different things with like the Holocaust or with like, um, honestly, what, what's going on in the news right now? I'm not going to get into it, but like there is, there's so many examples of, there's so many examples where there is the separation where it's, it's, it's scary that human beings can have that thing where you can switch off that. It's like a, it's like a, I don't know what it is, but it's like, you can stop seeing people as lives, their lives even mattering like at all. Well, I mean, I think it's just like coming to realization, like if they have any power, they're going to do exactly what we've done to them. And it's like, can't have that. So it's like, a con- I mean, the fact that like Ernest and his uncle are based or our family, you can see like the genetic narcissism because Robert De Niro's character is like, he's exactly the same thing. Just like, I'm saving these people. I'm treating these people well. I don't mind killing them also, but I'm doing everything for them. He's told himself that he's the good guy in every aspect, even when he's killing them. Told himself he's God. Yeah. yeah. It's King. almost like he views like even in even in killing them, it's like it's an act of kindness because he's the one doing it to them and not like someone else or like Because he thinks if they actually had free reign with their money and everything that they would be doing that to him and every white person around them, they would just be like, You're not allowed here, we're killing you. Like <laughs> 
but they weren't and they never were. I think that's because he honestly, I think, views them as lesser. That's just racism right there because like uh, these people can't handle what I have as a white man and what all uh, we can do as like a white society. So we're going to like have them under our thumb and, and give them a level of, of privilege and, and um, you know, like power, but not enough to be able to usurp us if, if, if they wanted to. Like he's like a king of that little of the of that reservation. Yeah, I love that little like I know it's like his actually his name, but I love that little bit in the beginning where he's like he insists that like Leo call him king. Yeah. Like, I think that's that that's also like conversely though, like there's an Zanel myth, like if he's like, Well, they would just do the same thing to us, that's also like him understanding who and what he is. Because if that's how he thinks other people react, that he's aware of what he's doing at the same time. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? He's like, well, if, if if I'm not killing them, they're going to kill me. Kill or be killed. If I'm not running the scam on them, I'm going to get the scam around me. So he has it. He, he has this inherent like understanding of, well, he thinks that everybody's as bad as he is. Oh, yeah. And he probably like the first time he's coming to Osage, he's probably in a room filled with like all of the like the Native Americans and they're speaking in their native tongue. And he's just being, I don't know what to, I don't know what they're saying. They're probably saying something bad. They're probably plotting something. I have to be the one to know everything. And so that's probably what he probably didn't learn the language out of like, I want to know these people. He probably learned it. So he didn't feel oh, yeah. like left out in the, the room of secrets. He, he comes across as the kind of person, kind of person that doesn't like <clears throat> really make decisions unless they're, uh, unless they're advantageous to him. He does. He definitely has aspects where he's just kind of not in touch with reality. Like there at the end, where he still thinks the Osage love him after after the trial and all this stuff. He's like, oh no, no, they love me. They lo- they'll love me back. They'll let me back in. There's just something kind of sick about him. Like like he's never gonna like come to come to terms with what's actually happening. I was totally unaware of. I mean, I was. I mean, obviously, I'm aware, loosely aware of uh, American history. But the, like this specific story, I was completely unaware of, like completely. Unaware. And I think what was really exciting about seeing this movie for me is it, I felt everything was so new to me. Like I felt like I was learning something, but I felt really transported. I transported, I felt transported into a place that I didn't really know existed. So that city, that little town where um, you had all of the native people who were like fabulously wealthy, but then also would have like... Um, people monitoring how much money they could spend almost like chaperones it would be like oh well we're gonna give you cash but you're gonna spend it on you know what i mean and then the but like the way the town was set up and how like all of that was just i didn't even know any of that happened like any of it so it felt really transportive to me to be there and to watch that because i was like oh, i'm seeing something i've never seen and i thought that was really really cool yeah i agree um i felt like i was in a history class but i was being equally entertained and also informed. And I, because I had no idea about this group of people and that the fact that this ever even happened. Yeah. And then when they saw in the, the Tulsa riots, they were getting informed with it. It's like, I've just learned about that one in the last like 15, 20 years, which is insane that took that long. But the fact that this wasn't also like, oh, and you know, in the same time period, this happened. And this, like, not far from here, a whole nother tragedy of, like, again, the American dream that wasn't white being destroyed. (laughs) And we're going, oh, yeah, it's their fault that they're in their economic downfall. So I think we were all pretty much unanimous about how much we liked the movie. 
Um, granted, I think on a slight, slight sliding scale, um, I don't think we were all like, this movie is a masterpiece, but I think we all unanimously really like the movie. Is there anything about the movie that wasn't working for you guys? Like anything that where it wasn't hitting, anything where you felt like the themes were getting kind of confused or it was getting over-egged? Only one thing, and it's super minor. I would have liked um, maybe just like letting me know what year things, certain scenes were taking place in. Yeah, the passage of time was kind of a bit um, malleable. That's I guess they were it. using the children as the way. Yeah, using the children. Yeah. I mean, I was like looking at like Leo's yeah, face and things like that. There's a really decent age. amount of time that passes yeah. between like the start <laughs> of the story and the end of it. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I didn't I didn't realize. I thought it all kind of was like concise. I didn't know that there was time jumps. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot. That's an issue. Though. But I think that just adding that little detail and maybe, I don't know if this would have strengthened the movie or hindered it, but maybe a little bit more time spent on how Hale got into that position. That would have been kind of cool for me to see, just like to see even just like a little montage like they did with like the passage of time of, of when the, the oil spouted to like the, the building of the of the reservation. Just something like that would have been cool. But other than that, that's about it for me. But I think that's where the movie does a good job of not oh, like th- like theatrical, like putting a theatrical spin on the facts and keeping it just there on the surface. So like, hey, you want to know about that character? Go read a book. Go find him out. Because it's like to do justice to why his methods of where he came from that's probably a bigger story. And also that would probably movies sometimes can make a bad character. Like you can justify or give them more yeah. like sympathy. And it's like, he doesn't need sympathy. You just need to know the facts, how I got there. And I don't need 30 extra minutes in a movie to tell me about this guy. You did a good enough job. He's terrible. <laughs> he represents so much more than he actually is. Specifically that scene where his, uh, you know, the scene where he like burns his ranch down and he's just standing on the porch, like overlooking it. I mean, like, you know, literally Satan. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's, um, I mean, I think De Niro's performance is really, really good in the movie. Yeah. But I think that, and it's nice to see De Niro, like, and I know with the Irishman, he came back, but it's nice to see him not doing Zach Efron comedies, like far comedies, <laughs> like, or whatever he's been doing the past few years. So it's nice to see De Niro give a shit and, like, be involved in something. I thought it was really good. DiCaprio, once again, I think DiCaprio is, is impeccable. Um, I think his performance is incredible. I think what's funny about DiCaprio is DiCaprio is so good that sometimes I just take him for granted. So sometimes I'll, I'll watch a movie and I don't really think, oh, DiCaprio's killing it. But I think that's how good he is. Where it does, he, he never feels showy, DiCaprio. Like, really, I mean, with the exception of, I suppose, um, in Django, uh, where he's very theatrical. Outside of that, though, he is like, he's, he's very, very good consecutively and i think like in this movie he's, he's he has a wonderful performance i want to talk about lily gladstone's performance too and i know there's a lot of talk about her getting a push for her for an oscar norm um i think probably best supporting actress i'm guessing uh for lily gladstone where are you guys on i i don't know is this her first movie um she was in um certain women by kelly reichardt oh it looks like she's been in kind of a lot not a lot but oh she was in first cow Hell yeah She's in First Cow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, First Cow, Certain Women. And she's um, in Reservation Dogs, the TV show. Oh, she is in Reservation Dogs. Are you sure? Yeah, it's those two episodes. Oh, damn. Okay. Okay, cool. Well, I mean, so she's obviously got chops. If she's coming from Brightcard movies, then you know what I mean? She's obviously going to be good coming into it. I think her performance is good. I think she's really good in the movie. It was my first experience with her, and I really liked like just kind of the stoicism that she brought to it. She was very good at just like like a strong, but like quiet force 
Yeah, like it's 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 crazy how much of a presence she is without mm-hmm. really. Well, it's like Leonardo DiCaprio's like stardom doesn't like she can just hold her own. She yeah. can make him feel small, and she innocent. doesn't have to like she doesn't have to like match. Like I don't know, it wouldn't make sense for that character to behave like similar or, like similarly to his, but like like there's a there's a quiet like power to that character and her performance. She's um, not pushing that performance. She's not like riding it. Yeah, she like is commanding or like you said like going head to head with like De Niro and DiCaprio and like still like commanding a presence in these scenes um, I mean I think that's just good character work because I mean she's the what the not the youngest of four a daughter a family of four daughters you know there's like strong like women like probably her mother her mother whew, we'll talk about it yeah, in a second, her mother, her mother is probably one of the hers. strongest yeah. and saddest characters of this whole movie yeah really think oh, about man. It. the can we talk about that for a little bit like the I one of my favorite parts of this movie is like the the scenes of like spirituality that he like represents like with the owls and the scene with the mother when she like passes on to the ancestral lands oh, holy man. shit dude that like I, that I like teared up my second time like seeing that like it's a really fucking beautiful scene yeah it's my favorite scene in the movie faith is like a big deal in a lot of Scorsese movies like silence comes to mind because I watched it recently but like you like I don't get the sense that like Scorsese maybe like understands these like uh, what these mean to like the Osage people, but uh, but there's like an obvious like respect I think for what's going on that that um, that lends to those just being portrayed like really beautifully. Um, okay, so on on the on the recurring theme, so like if Scorsese is interested in with faith because he is because if you think about even if you go to like Goodfellas, when you have Pesci's mother who's very very like you know she has all the paintings of Jesus on the wall, and obviously he's Catholic, he's probably Roman Catholic, he's Italian. So, and then he obviously he did The Last Temptation of Christ, um, Silence, Kundun, which is uh, about uh, the Buddhist faith, correct? I think he does understand it. I think he understands, but I think obviously he doesn't, it, I think the importance of uh, a person's faith, I think is definitely, yeah, you're right, a recurring theme. He, he does, he's very good at recognizing how important that is to the Osage. And I think took great care in like depicting those in the movie and it turned out really well. I think it was really good because I think it's a fine line in doing that without it come across as um, spiritualistic um, mumbo jumbo y. You know what I mean? So, you you know, there's, they could, there's a, like, it's respecting that element of their culture without making that a stereotype of their culture, which is, you know what I mean? It could be easily done. It's easy to push that across and be like, oh, they're so spiritual, the native. You know what I mean? Like, you can, you, there's, there's a respectful way to do it without making it sensationalist. I think it was very subtle and never once did I feel like he was exploiting the Osage people and their beliefs to, for the story or anything like that. I wouldn't get any exploitation from any part of it other than the actual story of exploitation. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but in terms of the the production and the, and the way the movie was handled. Um, and like recurring themes, yeah, too. Faith, I think, is one. And I think we were talking about this the other day, too. I think greed is a huge thing in Scorsese movies. Um, I mean, almost every movie has that undercurrent of... Um, you know, uh, trying to make money at whatever means necessary, um, swindling money, um, hustling money. Um, most notably, obviously, the the apex of that would be Wolf of Wall Street, which is like the most grotesque version of that. But you also have that in Casino and Goodfellas. This movie, to me, if I was to like group Scorsese movies together, this movie, to me, in terms of the way it moves through a period of time and it culminates in um, like the rise and fall of an antihero, so to speak, this movie is definitely in the Goodfellas casino group of movies in terms of like the way the narrative unfolds 
more so than his other movies. So I think I definitely think there's like groups. It's in the same group as The Irishman, which is also in the same group. As, you know what I mean? It feels like very similar to that. Um, that whole rise and fall because the whole time you know, the whole time you're watching it, you know going into it like this is all going to turn to shit. You know what I mean? Like, and how is it going to turn to shit? But they are successful at what they're doing for a period of time. Where there is a period of time where everything's running smoothly for them, but that's that's too that the kind of the thing that I kind of love about this and how I feel like it it kind of is a spin on that is is how like I well, I mean we know like ten minutes in like Hale the the first minute like he's he meets DiCaprio he's like telling them like you know the he's he's sowing planting the seeds for what he wants to do already and the movie is like very upfront like there's no uh, it's like a crime movie but there's no like whodunit element to it because you know who did it from the very beginning and you're kind of like spend the next three hours just being like, how are they not getting like, how is nothing happening? Did anybody else get frustrated then at any point? Because I felt like for me, there was points where I was frustrated with Lily Gladstone, with Molly. With like her? It was an element of her suffering and her, uh, at a point, and and again, this is just me reading the movie and like, I'm not making assumptions about anything, but I'm just saying in terms of like, as a viewer, there was a point where I kind of wanted to reach in the screen and shake it and be like, for fuck's sake, wake up. You know what I mean? Like you got to see what they're doing to you people. Like, you know, you have to at some point. And I know, I mean, it's easy for me to say with the privilege of nowadays and watching it and, 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 and being apart from it, but there was like, it was frustrating. I think at parts because there has to be a point where she, she, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what she could have done, but like it felt at some point I was like, are you just like your sufferance is like incredible. Yeah, I mean, she clearly has like suspicions at times. It really kind of showcased the mentality of like the oppressed, like the mindset of like the oppressed people. Like the the lock that these white men had on these natives was just—it's hard to imagine. Like they were just with the with the kind of they can't even spend their own money. You know, all they must have thought that you know these laws are supposed to protect us, but they're not. You know, just I don't know. It's just it's like a psychological descent into you know what it must have been like only word that comes to my mind is is faith is faith faith that that the people that they put their faith into the white people were going to do what was in the best interest for them and that they were truly meaning what they said i think like watching silence earlier today like he plays with faith a lot in all of his movies and just trust it's i'm going back to the faith thing but it's, it's about also about like her having faith in her love for Ernest and the choice that she made to like love Ernest. And and her faith that Ernest's love for her is also real still. Um, like, because in the scene where she initially like sends the doctors away, like I think it's that one. But she she oh no, it's when he's staring out the he's staring out the window watching Blackie Thompson steal his his uh, roadster, and then like she like oh, wakes yeah. up in the middle of the night, and um, <laughs> and she's like, I need to know that like she's like I don't like she's like I don't like feel you here. I need to know that you like still love me. And and I I think a lot of like why it's hard for her is because like this, I mean, and it's not like an insignificant choice to like, I like it's, it's a heavy choice for her to choose to like love and marry him. Cause like, I feel like there's a one scene where she has like the pressure from her mother or like the, her mother makes her feel guilty. She's like, you all marry white men. Like our blood's becoming white. Like I think there's a, there's a strong will, willness to her that like wants to, she doesn't want like to have married Ernest and, and for it, you know, to not work out. I basically, yeah, like almost a sense of pride thing. Even early on where she is in the early stages of her courtship with Ernest and she's talking with her sisters and they're like, oh, he's staring at you. And then she's, and then, you know, they're like, they're, they're all sitting around 
and they're looking at the men and they're sitting and talking about all of their relationships with all these other men. And she goes, oh, he's a coyote or whatever. Like he's, he's here for the money. Like, so she's, there's this really interesting dynamic that she's aware of who he is and she's aware that he, of his behavior and how he can't be trusted. But then she, there's something really cool about the way she loves him in, in that sense where she, it's almost like, I don't, I don't think it's a case of her thinking that she can change him or that their love is stronger than what his natural instinct and natural behavior is. I think she just genuinely loves him for who he is. And she's aware of who he is. Like, I feel like all along she's aware of who he is. I don't think she realizes to the extent until the very end, like, you know, like how bad he actually was. But I think it, even going into it, I think she knew like he is not to be trusted. I agree like with that. And like, I think with like Native American people have been so in tune with nature and that they like have such respect and revere for, you know, a coyote is pretty dangerous. And they, but they're also like, I respect you. If you don't cross path with me, you're not going to harm me. I'm not going to harm you type of thing. So we can have like a mutual respect. So it's the name of calling him a coyote is pretty like funny because it's like an animal where, you could probably kill, but you don't want to have to fight. And it's going to be a pain. It's going to steal your food probably first before you notice it's there. And then, you know, it's going to start doing things around your, your camp and your community before you're like, wait, we have a coyote here. Like all the chickens are dead and things are happening slowly, which I guess is the whole movie. But my point that I couldn't remember, I can't remember now, was that the... The way that like all of the like the Native American people, they really just said, hey, we're part of this like government. We're part of this society. We're not like eye for an eye anymore because they were like, we could just start killing people because this is technically our land, <laughs> but we're not. We're doing what we're kind of been told like we're supposed to live in this civilized society and we're doing what these white people think so we don't look, you know, like our crazy native selves in front of them. We're going to, hey, we're going to turn the other cheek. We're going to develop your banks, your hospitals, your things that make your culture acceptable. We're going to accept it. But then, boy, they're just being exploited the whole time. And they can't they can't retaliate in the same way without it just being like, look at how they're naturally behaving towards us. And it's like, no, they're doing everything to behave like us and do everything to be accepted and seen equal in their eyes, even to the point, because I mean, it's coming off from like the end of the wild, wild west. And if any history, you know, crazy cowboy and Indian movie shows you, it's not like the depictions of native Americans in that era. And if you're coming out of that era, like you were probably trying to be like, we're not what the movies are showing us as and stuff. And I think that's what makes it really heartbreaking. I think that's what makes the, and that ties into what you said, Seth, too, is the mindset of the oppressed in the point where you get almost broken to the point where it's like Stockholm Syndrome or whatever, where you 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 almost start to allow yourself to be persecuted because you have been so controlled and so dominated that you um, start to lose your sight of like a lot of things. And I think that applies to a bunch of things. And I think that's, again, yeah, what makes this the the situation so tragic is 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 the complete annihilation and the complete of like it's it, it's the complete um subjugation of of this whole culture which is you know which is wild and it was wild to see and, and, and interestingly enough 
nothing, I don't think we've had that story in movies before, like not in a mainstream, I can't, the, I can't think of anything that's really told this tale before. Yeah, there really isn't. I mean, if you think about movies that really cover that, like that feature, if I'm going off the top of my head, like Native Americans in the story, I'm thinking of like Last of the Mohicans. I'm thinking, you know, uh, Dances with Wolves, uh, Pocahontas. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about movies that really, it's almost as if like Hollywood stopped talking about Natives when it reached past that wild, wild west stage. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like they just stopped yeah. talking about it. So that in that, that, that start of the whole new industrial world that started to happen, it's as if like we we stop including them as part of the conversation because it's just like it's just it 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 just doesn't happen. So you you lose sight of that. I th- I think that's kind of sort of a a point or like maybe the sort of the point that the movie is trying to make with the way it ends with the like abrupt kind of like shift to the like the radio talk show like the serialized like story of the like it's yeah, literally let's move into that. It's a uh, yeah. Sorry to just pull us right into it, but it's it's literally like from the files of the the desk of the FBI. It's like from the desk of J. Edgar Hoover. Like it's so so gross. It's a bunch <laughs> of white people telling a who probably a bunch of white people listening on the radios about this story with no like details or nothing. Just here's a little cliff notes version of this very significant thing. It's for like you know amusement, like almost mm-hmm. like yeah. with the with the. You know, like a ra- like a radio drama. You know, yeah, it's been turned into like entertainment and and like drained of all of its. Uh, I don't know, just like all, all the the like tragic parts of it. Yeah, it's just like another soulless telling of like a, a, a an atrocity that's happened to a group of people. But it wasn't that. It was telling of the FBI's greatness during that time. It wasn't the murders. It was just the FBI's. This it was oh, stories yeah, of how right. great the FBI were. So it was just probably like. They infiltrated the Osage, you know, community, and that was why that was chosen because it just showed off the FBI being awesome. Because that's what that, Not, the FBI was created, right? Yeah, that's. Yeah, yeah I that's, think that's what the book is. Yeah, the book yeah, is literally yeah. like the story of how uh, the FBI was created, and then how how they saved or how they investigated the Osage. And I think that's what it, it was like—a triumphal, triumphant thing for the FBI. Because they paid. They paid have the fbi come and investigate didn't they that's yeah that's terrible to get to the end of the movie that time jump that we did where it sh- shot forward and it's very jarring because it really really pulls you back it's like it it's um it's like one of those drone cameras that just goes really really high up in the sky and then you start to see everything like uh contained and it really just like sucks the movie back into the past and it pushes you into like a, a, i'm not sure what decade it was where it goes through but it's it, time had passed obviously and then um it's very jarring but i think it's very very effective it's a good way to end it because i didn't know how it was going to end because it's like it could just go to black and have like Here's some written text of like where yeah, these people factors. happened. Yeah, and, yeah. Right. And it, and it didn't, it opened it, it like, it, it's so good because it opens to the point where like, I still don't know hundred percent the facts of like how all these characters ended. It's going to take my research and I actually want to, because they ended in like, huh, I don't know enough, but I want to know more. And it was a great movie. I liked it. With that being said, since we got to the end of the movie, uh, let's wrap it up. Yeah, I think it's a really good ending of the movie. Not happy to see Jack White in it. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of Jack White. <laughs> That's exactly I what I was going to say. Could have done without Jack White. Yeah, and there was a lot of uh, musicians. I don't know why he, t- he took me out of it. Wait, I was he was like, in God it. It's Jack White. He was at yeah. the very end. He's well, in the radio. That show. was the one. Huh. 
who was Jack White in the movie? I didn't even notice him. He's at the radio play well, at no, the very he's, end. He's on the radio play. Oh, okay. In, um, one of the brothers, not one of the brothers, one of the sisters is married to um, another musician, a country musician. Uh, the guy that plays him actually is really good. Brendan Fraser's appearance was nice too. Yeah. We didn't mention yeah. that. Kind of came out of nowhere. Oh yeah. yeah. See that for me, that was the solidification of like the intimidation. I mean, this lawyer just stands up and screams at Dick and it's like anybody would shit their pants. I feel like. Oh, when he, uh, oh, Leonardo and, and walk into that room. Yeah. When he walks Ooh. into the room. Yeah. Uh, well, he's so his imposing. lawyer. He starts shouting at him. Yeah. I think we all have like that feeling of just walking in the room and you know, everyone is mad at you. Or everyone is <laughs> oh god like, yeah oh, that's intimidating oh yeah. they they have something that you're going to tell me that I don't know and I'm scared to death right now um that was that was a weird scene yeah you know who it is so um here we go Bill Smith the character Bill Smith who was yeah. Minnie one of the one of the women her husband great performance that's Jason Isbell yeah the he's awesome. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yep. awesome. Isn't he good in that oh movie? Oh my goodness. Because he has that, that creepy Jesus. look to him. Yeah, Jason Isbell really was good. Bill Smith. Yeah. Oh. So mm-hmm. he actually was married to one of the Osage women, but he, was he a good guy? Was he like, he was having an investigation running? Like he was a good guy or no? I mean, he I, like married one sister. He made, he, he and then married the other sister right, when she died. That. So yeah. I think he wasn't like great, but he was conducting an investigation. And then, and then the reason, yeah, the reason they killed him is because he was going to leak what he found from the investigation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they needed to get rid of him too, because he started killing the, as the inheritance started to move up through the chain, yeah, like every sister died, him. him remarrying puts him back into the inheritance run because when the one sister died, you know what I mean? So I think, I think he was, so whilst he wasn't working with King and he wasn't part of that operation and he was trying to do an investigation, he was still playing that system though, but I think he was playing it himself. So he, I don't think he's a good guy. No, but I think his performance is good. Yeah, I think like he he's probably like a smarter version of Ernest where he thought I can do this. I can have part of this family. They're not going to hurt me. And I can also turn them in and backstab them and do all that and I'll be fine. And again, I think he's a little smarter than Ernest, but I think, again, he gets blown up. And boy, that the, the bomber. All all of like the crooks, all of the, the side characters, they really did set... That yeah. 1920s. They look yeah. like they're in yeah. the 1920s. <laughs> Ace <Yeah>. Kirby. <laughs> the one actor was a, it was like Ken Selmy. Um, he's the guy who was doing the Is it the a big jig. skinny guy? Yeah, big, tall, skinny guy who like, who was just, who described how he killed her sister, like really despicably. Yeah, that guy. He was also in The Irishman. He played uh, the hitman that actually killed, well, yeah. He's Sally, uh, Sally, something. Sally. Yeah. 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 It was a bad hit. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. And then, then, and the, the part in the, <laughs> in the car with the fish in the back, he's like, that movie's so good. I mean, this movie's so long. We haven't even talked about Jesse Plemons at all. Oh and yeah. Yeah. Jesse Plemons. Jesse Plemons and his Just, giant hat. <laughs> I love Jesse. Well, you know, what's interesting is I guess I haven't read the book and I know that you're reading the book currently, Daniel, correct? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I guess, um, Eric's not a big fan of this movie, by the way. That's why Eric decided not to be on wow. this podcast. Um, he didn't is, like isn't that it. Wild that Eric did. No, yeah. I think Eric was blue. Eric said he never even thought about it after he left the theater. He was like, "I saw it," and I was like, Bleh. "But you know what's interesting though?" Because he, but he's a huge fan of the book, Eric. So I think he's he's doing the whole "the book's better than the movie" thing. Um, if you're listening, <laughs> to Eric, you know what I'm talking about, buddy. Um, but anyway, um, he said that the book focuses more on Jesse Plemons a lot more. I think it's about, yeah, he's like the main character at, at some point. Like Molly is like the first couple chapters of the book. 
Yeah, that's what I hear. I love to see Jesse Plemons. Yeah, he's great. He's always great. Um, one note that kind of can wrap up to like what we talked about at the very beginning with like what are significant Scorsese things were like the way his like production value and like sets and costumes are like some of the highest caliber of can just make a design anywhere. And I'm like looking up around like the cost, like the costume designer. Her name's Jacqueline West. She's done Dune, Curious Case of Benjamin Button, The Revenant. She, uh, Argo she won the Oscar for Argo so like I I mean I said to Daniel I was like this the costumes are amazing and like the set pieces I mean yeah, literally the, the main design. three mm-hmm. are like the only every time they're on the thing you're, you're like they're not part of the 1920s but everyone else every back actor amazing it was just the Mason Lodge um, like they built that like that looks it's crazy the production like the production value of the sets are, is, is nuts I used to want to be a Mason, but I don't want to get spanked. So. <laughs> There's always that weird sexual thing with those clubs. Always, yeah, the there thing. is. You're right. Weird, I mean, <laughs> those clubs. Oh, and then like the <laughs> KKK just yeah. walking down the parade. Just oh, but there's just that town. I mean, it literally is a bunch of coyotes that just snuck into a sheep's den, and now they're just like they're like we don't need the sheep's costume anymore they don't they're not scared of us even though we're killing them (laughs) well i guess guys let's wrap it up for the evening because we're heading on late and we did take up a lot of time playing stupid trivia god really bummed we can't do more yeah there's so much more about this movie to talk about but yeah yeah there is more yeah okay well thank you thank you everybody for coming on the podcast um thanks david first appearance killing it thank you for having me killing it hopefully first of many and seth you too killing it Thank you. Thanks, dear listener. Thanks, Chris and Daniel, legends. I'm looking forward to see what you guys do as your next episode without me. Oh, okay. Any ideas? No? No ideas? Yeah, we've got, we've okay. got some ideas. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Thanks, listeners, and um, or listener, depending on how many people <laughs> tune in for this episode. And that's all we have for Killers of the Flower Moon. We could talk about it much, much longer, but time's dragging on, and we've got other stuff to do. And uh, Movies Last Night will be back. Thank you. All right. Goodbye.